What makes a genius? Today, we'll talk with University of Utah Health evolutionary geneticist, Dr. Nels Eldi, a 2020 Genius Grant winner. Examining the latest research and telling you about the latest breakthroughs, the Science and Research Show is on the scope. Dr. Eldi, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. I've been trying to convince my wife for many years that I am indeed a genius, although the MacArthur Foundation likes to point out that it's a creativity award. So maybe that's a, a more fair definition. Well, I'm glad you said that because that is my very first question. Um, and the MacArthur Fellowship or Genius Grant is known for pinpointing individuals who are not only dedicated to their pursuits, but who are also creative and incredibly original, um, comes up with their own line of thinking and, and goes after it. I'm wondering, um, how do those qualities manifest themselves in, in your work and in yourself? Mm, that's a great question. So I'm, I have to say, I'm just absolutely thrilled for um, and surprised and thrilled for receiving this award. You know, as you know, Julie, in my lab, we study the evolution of interactions between infectious microbes and their hosts. And those microbes are mostly viruses. Uh, I'd say the year 2020 has been the, for more worse than better in a lot of ways, has been the year of the virus <laughs> as we're all grappling with the current pandemic. And so, um, to be recognized for a lot of our work on the evolution of viruses and also the evolution of our immune system. How do our immune systems recognize um, and fight viruses? And putting that into this sort of longer evolutionary context, is it's really an incredible honor to be recognized for our work there. You describe yourself as an evolutionary geneticist. Um, you touched on that a little bit, but how, how would you ex explain that term? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I grew up actually as a cell biologist, I was really curious about the, uh, if you just look at our cells or cells of other critters, how they're put together. Um, but more than that, sort of what are the shared features between them in unrelated, um, you know, species, cells from unrelated species. And this kind of got this idea sort of stuck in my head or this interest that I couldn't sort of put down, which is, um, what does that really mean from a genetic standpoint, uh, the DNA that encodes the genes uh, and the proteins that are doing the work in the cells or even, you know, the um, architecture of the cells? How are all these things related over evolutionary time? And so that's kind of what um, moved me into this area of evolutionary genetics. And in particular, got really excited about the interactions or collisions between infectious microbes, so things like viruses, bacteria, fungal pathogens, um, and uh, and our immune system or our cells in general, and so that's where we've been doing this work um, now at Utah for coming up on ten years. So you're talking about collisions between viruses and humans or animals. Um, what do you mean by that, and what happens when when those collisions happen? Yeah, so I think you know this is an idea that's pretty much front and center these days. So we've had a lot of um, unfortunate collisions with viruses. So with the current coronavirus pandemic, SARS-2, if we use that as an example, I think it can illustrate sort of what's going on here. So we're still, you know, obviously sort of trying to frantically learn what's going on, but there's this idea that uh, a virus very closely related or identical basically to the um, pandemic strain was circulating in perhaps in bats or another animal, what we would call a reservoir, where the virus is replicating, but not having maybe a, a visible 
um, or certainly not medical impact. Then somehow there's um, a physical collision uh, between us uh, and these animals that might be harboring these viruses. And um, this is, by the way, happening constantly um, all around us and uh, to us. And most of the time, uh, nothing happens, actually. It's sort of a dead-end event. The collision, it's a, it's a, you ricochet. The virus ricochets off of the host, which could be us or another animal. Um, but then in these really rare cases, these spillover events, um, something really consequential could happen. The collision, you know, just like a car accident, um, might really change our, your life. And that's what's happening to us, to, to us all now. As we know, sometime um, back last week, fall or about a year ago, maybe early winter, um, this virus emerged. So it spilled over somehow from a still somewhat mysterious animal reservoir and they began to replicate in humans and worse than that, transmit between humans. So now one collision, one car accident becomes millions of collisions and we're seeing sort of, um, we're still you know working uh, with the impact of that today. And so what's the value of learning that information? Yeah. So, you know, we've seen that viruses are pretty uh, impactful. And so uh, it's really important, um, I think, for, for many reasons. So we're actually f- both practical. So if we can understand how do these viruses change and defeat, for example, our immune defenses, then we might have a better chance of actually countering that. And so if we can understand what is it that make these viruses tick, how, are the, how do they replicate better or worse, whether it's in just a few short days or a number of years, then we're, we're starting to learn their secrets, their tricks for how they become successful. And in many cases, which makes us sick or unsuccessful, and then can we kind of bend the curve? Can we start to intervene? Um, at the same time, we're interested in maybe a, a slightly different question as well, a bigger question, which is how does evolution work? So viruses, because they replicate so quickly and mutate so fast, uh, it's almost like a little laboratory of evolution that you can see before your eyes. So half our lab is involves setting up uh, evolution in action. So this is experimental evolution. We're taking viruses that are weakened strains, so they're not very they're not dangerous. And we allow them to continuously replicate just to see if they get better. Can they return to their old state, not turn into superbugs, but can they just improve a little bit? And actually in, in over the course of a few months, watching that process, we're learning about how evolution works. It turns out that not only how viruses replicate, um, you know, allows them to be successful, but a lot of the same mechanisms are at play over a longer time course in our own genomes, our own DNA, as we look at all of the diversity in our own species. And so the viruses are sort of giving these gifts back. We have all, you know, these terrible health consequences that we're grappling with around the world today. And yet there's also this sort of positive side where they're actually sort of teaching us um, both about the evolutionary process and even how our cells work in some cases. So you witness these relentless attacks from viruses and how they can just change on a whim to overcome our defenses. Um, in a way, that's that's pretty scary. I mean, what what gives you hope at the end of the day? <laughs> it is true. I think we've been focusing on a lot of the negative consequences of viruses these days. The good news is that we have these incredibly complex and amazing immune systems that counter these viruses. And so that's the other half of the work that we're doing in the lab is to try to understand the evolution 
of the host. And the host could be us. It could be our close relatives among the primates. And so here, we don't have that luxury of evolution happening as quickly, right? Our generation times are more like 20 years than 20 minutes. And so what we do is take a very different approach, and that is to compare all of the diversity of modern species, and in particular, the, the slight differences in our immune defenses, and then try to work backwards. What did our ancestors look like? And how has this changed? Maybe not over the course of three months, but over the course of 30,000 or 300,000 years. And in doing that, what we're beginning to discover is all of this incredible diversity, these pa genetic patterns that um, sort of give some of the clues to how it is that we exist at all. Our immune systems have been up to the task. Um, and in many cases, um, in, in recent cases, we've actually used our knowledge that we've gained uh, about these interactions to start to bend the curve, whether that this is our new vaccines that we've seen that have worked and some of the viruses that we've been studying or ones we're dealing with now. Um, there's really great reasons for optimism that we're now, in addition to all this diversity, we're using our brains as scientists to start to bend the curve and to, to learn how to have better outcomes. Yeah, that's really amazing. I mean, and just the idea that you can watch evolution in the lab, mm -hmm. that you can kind of manipulate that and uh, and see how it unfolds. I That just sounds amazing. You know, I love listening to to you talk about this and you use words like fun and, um, you know, you can hear the excitement in your voice and um, just the way that you describe things is very um, imaginative. I know that um, training trainees, postdocs and graduate students is something that's very important to you. Are there ways that you can instill kind of this same creativity that you're known for um, in them? Mm. Yeah, that's the, that's certainly the hope. And you know, this has been a challenging few months as we've been um, dealing with the pandemic. So we've been, a lot, you know, a lot of our work, of course, is over Zoom meetings or working alone. But that it's exactly what you're saying, Julia. That doesn't represent sort of the main energy of the lab, which is working together and um, kind of teaming up. And so uh, the scientific process is, it, it really is, uh, to me, and I think to the trainees, um, you know, it can obviously be hard and there's a lot of complicated work to understand and put together a lot of failures along the way, but it really at the center of it is fun is sort of that these are adventures where we're, we're kind of setting out to explore and we don't know what we're going to find. And so I think just by kind of um, creating, framing the questions or kind of creating the space to explore and to not be sort of stuck that you need one answer or another or we're trying to, you know, fit one idea into something. We let the, we try to let the, <laughs> the viruses or the microbes tell us uh, what they've learned uh, about our biology, about our evolution. Um, and in some ways, that takes a little bit of the pressure off. We can um, sort of allow the experiments to tell us and, and to kind of follow our noses. I think that naturally makes things a lot more fun. And then, you know, to get to your question, the trainees that have um, joined on on these projects. I, are all bringing their creative energy um, to the table. And that's not just sort of an added effect. It feels like a multiplying effect where um, as we're colliding as scientists and bringing our own curiosity, bringing our own creativity, um, really fun things can happen. Well, thank you very much for talking today. And um, congratulations again on the award. Thanks, Julie. Great to talk to you today and looking forward to the science adventures ahead here at Utah. Interesting, informative, and all in the name of better health. This is the Scope Health Sciences Radio.